This is Chris Evans. I'm here recording a Data Unpacked podcast with Floyd Christofferson from Hammerspace. Floyd, how are you doing? Hi, Chris. Nice to be here. Uh, thank you for joining me. So uh, could you just give everybody a little bit of a brief introduction as to what Hammerspace does and what you do for the company? Sure. Hammerspace is a software that is really designed to address the problem of silos of data, of, of bridging the gaps that occur between storage layers that occur. Uh, and this may be different storage types within a data center. Uh, more frequently these days, it's multiple data centers or data center on-prem and cloud. So this is a software solution designed to address that. My role at Hammerspace is I run product marketing. Perfect, thank you. So that's a really interesting point you started off with, you know, describing the fact that people have lots of data in lots of places. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go back and look at the way things were 20 years ago, say, maybe the larger companies had a few data centers, many data centers, but really we didn't, we didn't have any cloud. So we didn't have the distribution of data in cloud and various other things. Whereas now, there's a proliferation, isn't there? I mean, you can you can talk about anything from the data center to the edge to cloud to you name it. That's right. That's right. I think you know one of the one thing that often happens is that people think, oh, we're not big enough to have this. And yet, if you look at across most companies, they are a distributed environment, whether they want to be or not. Maybe they've got a DR site somewhere, or maybe they've got a, a remote office. Or maybe they've got you know some of the data pushes to cloud, and so everybody is dealing with this fragmentation of the data sets across inevitably incompatible storage types, and so that that it's 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 become prevalent even though not everybody is a megacorp with data centers all over the world, it goes down even to the you know much more uh, modest sized companies. And I think people would have said if you were if you were trying to put a definition on what hybrid actually means. Mm -hmm. I think everybody might think hybrid just means multiple data centers, you know, some in the cloud, some on-prem. But in actual fact, a lot of people will have multiple uh, heterogeneous types of uh, storage systems. That's I right. know that in quite a lot of the places I've worked, we've had, let's call it one of everything, probably, you know, so you know, you could go looking somewhere and go, Oh, yeah, there's the HP one, there's the, the Dell ones. And, right. and inevitably, they're all different, they operate differently, you know, different performance characteristics. So there's a degree of heterogeneity within our data centers, as well as the hybrid aspect. So trying to get a feel of how we manage this is quite hard. So you're, you're obviously seeing customers having all of those uh, environments. That's right. What are they looking to achieve when they talk about hybrid, then are they looking to try and just manage that infrastructure? Or are they now trying to do more with it? I think it's a bit of both, in fact. I mean, I, I always say that there is no one size fits all storage. And the other truism is that the data will always outlast whatever storage platform it's on today. So those two things for IT administrators, for users of data, that creates a tension because inevitably they have to go to multiple places to find their data. So, so part of the problem is, like you said, they just have to manage this, you know, copies of data proliferate, or you may have different use cases within a same organization with sh shared infrastructure. So the data is here today, but doesn't belong here today. Simple tiering, but when you compound that across spanning data of different uses, different locations, ultimately bursting to cloud perhaps because you can't you know you can't expand on-prem anymore 
then it just the complexity gets out of whack. So they want better access to the data so they can monetize it, they can use it more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Also, it becomes a cost center as opposed to a profit center, meaning that the OPEX of managing it across all of these different uh, touch points becomes overwhelming after a while. Yeah, what's the expression? You know, people said a dog isn't for Christmas, it's for life. And in, in, in lots of respects, your data is, you know, not just for one particular project, it is potentially for life nowadays. Sure. So you you create data thinking, yeah, we've done it for this project, we'll archive it, we'll keep it, we might use it again. That might have been the way we looked at it in the past. But now people look at data and think, well, I could mine this data, I might be required to keep it because of increased regulation around me. So as you said, data lives outlives the platform significantly compared to what it used to before. And that to me seems one of the biggest operational issues that in reality, we've moved on to a situation where now data is the, the consistent, the longevity part of our of our systems. And not only is it the long lived stuff in the data center, and our hardware is being replaced, but our applications are changing and being replaced, and data is outliving those too. So mm -hmm. ultimately, for companies like yourselves, you're trying to solve the challenges of that long term data management. That's right. And, you know, add to this the problem that oftentimes people don't even know what the data that they're storing, especially on expensive storage, they're not quite sure what it is. Mm. You know, do we need to keep it? I've, I've in, in my career, I've worked with, you know, a lot of environments, mainly HPC environments and media environments. Media have it a little bit more organized, but often in research and HPC, they've got all of this data. They think it's important. It probably is important, but how many copies do they have? Is it sitting on the right storage? It, should it be protected in a different way? It becomes a, a, a big problem, not only in that you want to use the data and you want to manage it effectively, but you got to know what it is so that you can apply policies, correct policies for how it's managed and protected and then able to be exploited. Yeah, I've, I've had the same problem in a number of places I've worked where we've gone to look at optimizing or refreshing something and you're looking at it going, well, who's, who's the owner of this data? That's right. And sometimes the, the file system or the volume name doesn't really, does give you a clue, but sometimes it doesn't. And then you look at the people accessing it and then you talk to them and they go, oh, well, we just saw there's some spare space there. So we just decided to put our stuff on there too. That's right. And we're like, what? Okay. So you're not the owner then? No, no. You know, it's incredible how lax people's data management skills are when it comes to, to this sort of thing. And I think that's probably a consequence of the way we've ended up as an organization or organizations over time, that storage has been relatively cheap and mm -hmm. the management of that is relatively expensive because it takes human effort. So the answer is just, let's just leave it and worry about it another day, I think a lot of the time. There's also a push-pull where, you know, you'll see in a lot of organizations, especially um, academic and research um, is a good example, where you've got a central IT, media organizations suffer this too, central IT. And so they say, okay, we've got to get control of all of this. So they establish rules, right? They've got, you know, mm -hmm. standards. This is the type of storage we're going to do. Well, that doesn't necessarily match with the business needs of a department or a grant funded project or whatever it may be. And so now you get the emergence of shadow IT, which is, oh, well, let's just go buy a NAS or we've got a grant. Let's go buy some storage because we can't deal with central IT causing us all these issues. So now what is already a problem of data sprawl, of infrastructure sprawl, 
now becomes a, a problem of is it protected? You know, this shadow IT or these different new silos over here, what is that data and is it protected? Does anybody know what its value is and how do you then collaborate with others with that data? Slight tangent here, but I once worked in an organization where we found that one team was deploying lots and lots of hardware and was asking us for storage and we're like, okay, fair enough. When we dug into it, they were building their own VMware farm because they didn't like the fact that they had to go to the central IT to get their VMware in, right. um, servers. So they just built their own and we're like, okay, okay, there's clearly an issue here with the process. So, right. you know, you're right, processes are a, a huge challenge in all of this. But when we're trying to make data mobile, what are the challenges of actually making that work in the environments that we work in today? Yeah, part of the problem of data mobility is that you're, it's copy-based, right? Because each, if you think about it, the, the file system is locked within the infrastructure layer. So the interface that people interact with when they're looking at files and folders on their desktop, most people don't realize they're actually looking at just a metadata representation of the bits that might be anywhere on any platter and any storage. Well, with that file system view locked in the infrastructure layer, it means that to go somewhere else, you have to copy. So you're forking that data. Now there's tricks around that with symbolic links and other types of things, but the reality is, is it's copy based. So, so, so the real problem then is, you know, how do you manage this, what becomes copy sprawl across infrastructure sprawl, right? So I, I, I like to you know, think back to when the operating system, when the file system was locked in the operating system in the 90s, to, to collaborate with somebody, you would put a copy of, on a, to a disk, hand them the disk, and then away they went, and now they could do it. Well, NetApp you know, introduced a network file system. So now the file system was elevated above the operating system Mm -hmm. so that people could collaborate on the same files. That only works within that same storage platform. Today's world, that's not enough because you've got to collaborate across multiple storage platforms, multiple locations. So we're back to the point where just like putting data on a floppy disk, you're having to copy everywhere. And so now the, the complexity, the management, the version control, all of these things just gets out of, out of control. Yeah, that's a really good way of describing it, actually. I quite like that, the idea of thinking about the way that we used to hand data around, mm -hmm. like physically hand data around. And we did centralize a lot, as you said, with SANS and with NAS, and all they did was centralize within certain locations, potentially. That's but right. And as we now redistribute our applications and want to put data in lots of different places, now all we've got is a NAS that looks just like a big floppy disk instead. As That's well, right. You know, That's exactly right. You can't, you can't really give it to somebody and say, oh, go on, make a copy of that. It just doesn't make sense. That's right. It's, but, because, the, it's because that crucial metadata is trapped within the infrastructure layer. And so... What we're doing here at Hammerspace is reimagining this by elevating that metadata layer out of the infrastructure. Now, you know, the metadata is now common across all. You can still use whichever storage platform you like. If you prefer NetApp, you've got a good relationship with them or Isilon or with whomever. You know, you've got a pure storage array. You need that performance. But what you need also is to be able to make the data fluid so that it goes like a, and, and can, can be transparent 
whether it's sitting on your pure, pure array or whether it's going down into an archive or into the cloud or to a remote location. And the only way you can do that is if you separate or decouple that metadata layer so it's persistent at the user and the application layer. And then the data essence without symlinks, without proprietary hooks, with all, all these things, that that data then can live when and where it needs to live and, and uh, completely be mobile in the back end. So the, the philosophically, there's, a, there's two ways you could go here. So, if, you know, you can go down the route and say, well, what we'll do is we'll abstract the, the file system, we'll move it up a layer, we'll say everybody has to go through my file system. Mm -hmm. It becomes a redirection layer in some respects, but it becomes the, tr the point of truth, but it potentially also could become a bottleneck. It be could become a challenge in determining how do you redirect that um, IO down to the physical storage? Do sure. you remap it? Do you just point to that physical storage or do you completely chunk up the underlying storage and then use your algorithm to disperse it across that physical infrastructure? Sure. And as soon as you do that, for example, you know, you're potentially locked in because now you can't read that stuff that's underlying it. So what was your logic about how you decided you thought the best route to take those sort of problems on and solve them would be? Sure. Well, I mean, one thing is it does have to be compatible with the underlying storage layer. So it can't just, you know, spread a proprietary file system, you know, down into the storage layer. So it's got to live within an ecosystem that includes multiple vendors, right? Secondly, it does have to perform. So you cannot have a bottleneck. So scaling out has to be virtually limitless, which is how we're architected. Also being embedded right into the kernel of, of the Linux kernel, um, our core technology is embedded right in the Linux kernel so that you know, you, you're not having to deal with you know, very locked in proprietary things. The metadata is metadata and that's very portable. You, know, you wanna unwind Hammerspace, you unwind the metadata, the data is still as it was. But the key here is solving the core problem in a vendor neutral mm -hmm. way. Because if you create a system that is say, okay, yes, we're going to bridge all these silos, but now you just have to live within our storage, our hardware, our particular you know, environment, then that's just a silo by another name. And so our philosophy, the design philosophy with Hammerspace has been to, yes, inevitably you have to elevate the file system above this layer, but you have to do so in a way that is compatible with any vendor's underlying storage. I guess there's another um, angle to that as well. So imagine, say, you're a, you're a very large organization, you build out this solution, you put it in place, and then you go to all the uh, people who own the data already and you say, actually, we're going to give you some additional functionality, we're going to give you the ability to move your data around. If you then said to them, and it's going to take us six months to ingest it, and during which time, of yeah. course, you will not be using that data because it will be yeah. uh, too risky, you could have conflicts. Most people are probably say. No, that is often the way that these projects come to an end, right? Yes. Because they just never get started. Yeah. And having no sort of remapping, if you like, in terms of chunking up the data and putting a proprietary file system under there, you've got an ability to ingest that data, make it available, but you're not necessarily doing that in an invasive fact, uh, way right. that's going to damage that. So that ingestion process should be relatively quick. It's it's extremely quick because what we're doing is assimilating the file system metadata. We call it assimilating because the data stays in place. The data is essentially unchanged. What we're doing is mapping that. And within a few minutes, even with very, very large environments, 
we can get a, an assimilation of that file system metadata. Users can begin browsing almost immediately, even in multi-billion file environments. In the background, sure, mm. the system is filling in all of the metadata as you go down, down, down through the hierarchical layers. But you don't have to wait because we're not moving the data to some proprietary silo. We're not having to do any of this. All of that can happen very quickly um, and with, with minimal interruption. The other aspect of the interruption is, is that this is the last time they will interrupt. Every time there's a, a technology refresh in an organization or even tiering, there's migrations. You have to move to a different mount point and now, oh, now we've got a new storage system. That goes away because once you've assimilated that metadata and you are now looking at that global file system, any changes in the back end, new storage, new locations, moving to cloud, moving to on-prem, all of that is transparent. Mm. I'm going to come on and talk about that use case in a second, but before I get to that, I just want to remember one thing. And that's, there's another angle to this, I think that is really useful. And that's that if you're a large environment, the chances are you start somewhere, you decide that you're going to replace your technology, you, you put in your solution, for example. And even if you then have a, a plan to go and ingest everybody into that system, inevitably, without even realizing it, there will be people who will have actually started other projects and other projects will, will form and they'll be you know discovered as you go along so if the ingestion process isn't simple that's right then you have a, a super big challenge because new stuff comes along all the time and you're always going to be discovering stuff in a, a large environment that's very dynamic so okay. i think you you talk about that one time ingest that one time ingest becomes a, a long-term benefit because there will always be new stuff you discover that's right it's, it's always going to happen and also another aspect of this is the shared nature of the infrastructure. You know, you bring up a great point. There might be different projects, different use cases, um, different cost centers and so forth. And so by not only assimilating the file system metadata, but also enabling custom metadata, automated custom metadata with inheritance, it means that even you, in a feature we just uh, released, which is a metadata plugin so that at a user level, without even calling IT, a department head can tag a file structure, his folders with a label for his department or their project or whatever. That is inherited automatically so that any file that comes from anywhere automatically inherits that metadata, which is crucial because now you don't have to rely on users to remember, oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta tag this so that I, but now as that data moves from storage platform to different storage platform to locations, it's very easy from a global level, either a departmental level or central IT to run a report. You know, how, how much, what's the cost allocation for this mm. project in shared resources? or you know, do objective-based policies to create different compliance rules around certain classes of data that are only identifiable by this metadata tags because maybe the folder naming hierarchy is, is broken or somebody forgot to label something, et cetera. And you know, I guess in that scenario, the ideas around that are fairly infinite. So you could, you know, could look at that and say, actually, maybe I don't want somebody to place something in a certain place. That's right. So if it's got that tag on it already and they copy it and they try and place it in a new geographic, you know, geographic location or something like that, you can go, nope, 
that's not that's not permitted i mean obviously you could choose to block or not block that's your sure you know that's a that's a workflow question but ultimately you could do that and you could start adding in things that stop people doing things that they really shouldn't do rather than finding out after the event and correcting it then which generally right. is is the problem so let's talk about some use cases then and talk a bit more about that because i think mm -hmm. that's where things get interesting and we'll divide it up into two and let's start with the really obvious one hardware replacement refresh mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff and when you look at your customer base you know is this the leading requirement for them or is this something they do as a side effect is this where they start and then they suddenly find that this actually leads on to other things. I'm just trying to understand how important it is to them to be able to use your technology as a refresh tool. I don't know that that refresh was necessarily the first. There are some customers that, yeah, they needed to be able to, they have a, a storage system that is aging. They know they're going to have to replace it. And that replacement is going to be a migration and it's going to be hugely disruptive. Uh, and typically they would have to set up an entire system and then it would be a, it would be a whole drama. And so, yeah, that, that does become a motivation, but typically it goes beyond that. And that might be that it might be one company acquiring another company. And now you've got two incompatible IT zones with different infrastructure, and they need to figure out how to get productive as a shared environment very quickly. Yeah. And, and then in the background, I mean, sort of the fringe benefit of that is, well, now we know we're going to have to upgrade the the infrastructure we've got new use cases with the combined resources and so all of that just becomes transparent in the background i've done this for a long time so i've done migrations and i've done you know deployments of new technology you name it i've done it sadly um I, yeah. I, you know you get to a certain age where you've pretty much seen everything that's right and the, and the one thing you've i always got think the scars to prove it but... yeah sadly yeah unfortunately and that, I, i've always thought that would make a great podcast in its own right you know all of the things that we've really sort of messed up over our careers and how we got out of it but anyway one for another day my thought has always been when i looked at your technology would be that from that file system layer downwards we'll call it I would look at that and say, once I've actually added and um, assimilated all the storage resources there, my first task, I think, would be at every time we do a refresh, I'd be looking across it going, well, actually, what's the cheapest um, solution we can put in? What's the most flexible with the availability? And I'd bit by bit, I'd want to be taking the opportunity to optimize that from a physical infrastructure. Sure. And I'd be looking at, you know, cheaper vendors. I'd be looking at all sorts of things like that within the limits, obviously, because there may be features I need that are fairly important. Mm -hmm. Tied to that would be pushing some of those features back up into your into your storage layer, because mm -hmm. things like snapshotting, uh, replication, potentially, depending on how you do, you know, you mm -hmm. would implement that. All of these things now become your responsibility. So that's right. So if I was a customer, that's what I'd be looking to do. I'd be looking to push the down and do it cheaper, but also push some of the technology up to you. Yeah, and it's not only cheaper, but part of the problem with with on the first aspect of that of that point is knowing how the data is being utilized. How is the storage utilization? And there's a lot of times people are kind of guessing and they don't really have it, especially if you go across platforms. And so by having the metadata and you can do a quick analysis to say, well, what is the storage utilization? Go back to the tagging, for example, the metadata tag. This project, what stores is it on? You know, how active is it sitting in the in the most expensive storage? 
So as I'm going to replace storage, then I, I need to really ask the question, well, what is my utilization? Do I need to really expand my primary? Maybe I can use a second tier or a third tier store that is much more cost effective without sacrificing the performance on the high end, right? And so now you've got the data, you've got the visibility to see yeah. that across them all. Yeah, and, and that's really difficult because if you've got many, many systems, usually the way you get that data is totally different from every single one. That's right. And it's incredibly difficult to then put that data together and say, well, actually, that one over there, that's got X percent utilization. Well, actually, that might be a bigger, uh, more higher powered system, or it might, you know, just have more right. SSDs in or whatever it happens to be. Ultimately, having a, a layer above gives you the ability to do that. And again, the transparency is important because yeah. it's not going to be static. The picture today is going to be different a month from now. And if you've got that flexibility to make, you know, it's almost an arbitrage decision on, you know, what is the, the best value right now? And then how do we change that next month? But without ever having to worry about interrupting your users or your applications. I wasn't going to go down into the depth of the techno storage bit pieces as much as this, but you've introduced a very interesting fact there. And that's one that relates to scale. So inevitably, as you scale, the human factor becomes impossible to, to actually manage and you waste too much time doing that. And I, I always think it's a bit like playing a game of Kaplunk, which that's a good way of dating uh, how old I am, you know, where you, you pull a straw out and you're never really sure what the impact of taking that straw out is going to be. The balls mm -hmm. might just sit there and might be fine, or you might just, you know, collapse the whole thing. And ultimately, as you scale more, it's almost impossible to to manage an environment manually because it just gets to a point where there's too much data to manage and as you say more importantly it changes dynamically you know users create new data you could have a system that has a run-on performance because there's you know somebody does a sale and suddenly you get tons more sales or you get more mm -hmm. activity or anything could generate it so that makes a lot of sense so it sounds like that's quite a big piece for you it is, is. A, is an it infrastructure is. piece yeah, okay. it, it is because also, you know, to, to the point you just made, you know, it is dynamic and this is where the ability to burst and that's another very common use case for our customers and we're talking about a hybrid world. Well, you know, maybe you do have an on-prem infrastructure, but you need to be able to, you know, for a project, you need to be able to expand out. And so cloud is right there, it's available, but typically it's a big lift. You may have to migrate a bunch of data there to make it work. Um, there's costs associated with that. Mm -hmm. And so the scalability story where we started before is not only does Hammerspace scale out, you know, linearly, you know, to virtually any, to, to saturate any infrastructure. I mean, we've just, even with 16 nodes, we've, you know, we've been getting, you know, uh, millions of IOPS and terabit throughput. That's, that's kind of trivial, but the ability to now scale beyond one site. So one of our customers, Jellyfish Pictures, they have this problem. So they've got a, a very strong, a very large, uh, powerful rendering data center, but they need to be able to, to render in, in the cloud. And so Hammerspace now can, can spin up very quickly and it becomes an extension to that existing file system. Spin it up, run a render job, either there or more importantly, add another region where the costs are lower and then spin it down again so you're not consuming extra costs. The file system is the same. 
you know, you're not having to migrate everything and wait, mm. and then it becomes permanent infrastructure. So you've got that dynamism of being able to dial up in multiple locations, dial it back to save costs, and all of that metadata layer never changes. It's all persistent. So that's stepping us up to the above the line discussion. So. Mm -hmm. Whereas you're sitting there as a file system previously, we just talked about below the line, the optimization of the physical resources. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about the capability to do something a bit more interesting and from an application perspective. That first one is very interesting indeed, because we hear lots of stories about the idea of bursting to the cloud. And I'm right. do, I'll do bursting with air quotes because yes. and, because people can't see what I'm actually doing. But it's one of those things that I think has been discussed for so long at, and at the same time, you look at it and go, but is it really happening? That's right. Because 10 years ago, you couldn't have moved even a single virtual machine to the cloud in an efficient way to burst. So That's right. you're actually implementing something which fundamentally makes that incredibly simple to do. Because it's not, it's not about picking up and lifting all the data. It's about exposing the, a new endpoint, which gives you the metadata. And at that point, then you decide how you're going to actually manipulate the data. But it must be more than that, because you know you could expose that data and say, well, go for it. But unless you've got some sort of technique to optimize how that data moves back and forth between the physical infrastructure, you're just still going to have the same problem. So how, how do you get around that? Well, one of the ways to solve this is you don't have to move whole volumes. It's basically because the file system layer is common, you know, I can browse the entire file system without moving, a, a, you know, one file. And then for workflows, you can, you know, what we, we don't use the word policies so much because we set what we call objectives because they're okay. really tied to business rules. And so, you know, whether it's a project, you set an objective where you can pre-stage data or you, the data can trickle in as it's being used or as it's needed because the file system is constant across it, all of that can happen much more deliberatively, if you will, uh, with a deterministic outcome at the back end without having to, again, I don't have to move the whole volume. I just move the same files because from a user's perspective, they're looking at that metadata layer. And even if some of the files are sitting on an on-prem storage and some of them are sitting in the cloud, I still have the same view because I'm not looking at copies. I'm looking at the same files. What about if customers already know their workflow? Let's let's talk about structured workflow that you already know about because mm -hmm. it's very it's very easy just to assume that a system is just sitting there waiting for requests, like um, somebody going into McDonald's where you know somebody walks into McDonald's and they've just got a load of stuff there ready, and they ask you what you want, you pay for it, and you walk out. There's no sort of pre-planning on that, so they just sort of sit in the background and hope that they've got everything ready, and it isn't always ready. Sometimes it might be cold, or sometimes it might not, you know, whatever. Or you get somebody Just comes in and asks, yeah, absolutely. Or somebody comes in and asks for something with a, without gherkins, and it's like, oh no, that's going to that's going to mess it up. But the alternative to that is a restaurant where, mm -hmm. you know, there's a preset menu and there's a preset uh, decision about how you go in and you book it and all the rest of it. Workflow to me seems like it's a bit more of the, the latter rather than the former in the sense that I've got predictable pathways for my data to flow. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you have a degree of understanding as, as to what might occur. So how are customers sort of and how do you implement some of the workflow techniques that people might need? Well, one of the key things is that the users need to be able to use it within the applications that are already 
you know, running. If they mm -hmm. have to go out to some separate system and do orchestration or do other things, it just adds friction to the workflow. So by being able to, through a metadata tag or through an integration with another application, I mean, at Jellyfish, for example, their users are using ShotGrid from Autodesk. They don't even okay. necessarily know that Hammerspace is there, but by clicking on a metadata trigger a tag within that, it will trigger a workflow that Hammerspace detects that. And the objective right. is, oh, these, this, these particular files from a data set, from a larger data set, now need to be staged over here. All of that is in the back end. So reduce the friction from the users in terms of having to learn new tools, making sure that those data movements can be just in time and only the files that are needed and not the whole volumes, for example, and then being able to ramp it up and down. I mean, you, you asked a moment ago about cloud with air quotes or in hybrid. Well, part of the problem is, is that it, you know, the current cloud, typical cloud implementations almost replicate a new silo. It just happens to be a silo that is outsourced and managed elsewhere. Again, if you've raised the file system up to this level uh, mm -hmm. above that, now these become resources. So you can spin up, I mean, electronic design, EDA um, uh, workflows, genomics workflows, rendering for media and entertainment. They can now take advantage of cloud rapidly, spin up additional resources for a project and rapidly spin them down. So they're not having to build new fixed infrastructure that is locked into a particular workflow. They can rapidly take advantage of this, of really what the promise of cloud was, this ability to have this limitless expansion without having to build new on-prem infrastructure. So without yeah. that file system global above the infrastructure layer and without it being compatible with any vendor storage, cloud-based, on-prem, anything, then the, the model kind of breaks. I Yes, I absolutely agree. And I think, I don't think we've really sort of understood, maybe lots of customers have, it sounds like you have lots of very interesting customers that clearly have understood the problem. But I don't think it's widely understood that the data mobility challenge will be the piece that really will drive That's our right. ability to absolutely make the most of cloud and make the most of any particular platform we want to go and use and ultimately that's going to come down to things like people saying well that one over there's got great gpus or that one's got some sort of that's cost right. reduction today or if i push that workload over there spot instances are half the price they are in another location that's right if you, if you can't use that well you know you haven't got the flexibility but if you can use that you can potentially save quite a bit of money but it's, it comes down to the data absolutely the data is the is the key part so that's right Customers clearly have an opportunity here to move the data around more dynamically, tag things and add that sort of tagging process to allow them to build things at workflow. Where do we think the hybrid world is going to head next? Because we have a certain degree of mobility with containers, potentially with serverless. Are we going to get to the point where data is driving the the innovation or even data mobility is driving the innovation as part of the this sort of shared file system going forward? Absolutely, because it's not only data, data mobility, but live data mobility, meaning that it can happen even while people are using it. And so when data becomes now liquid or fluid, if you will, so that it, it, it can gravitate where it needs to be 
without the friction of interrupting users or without the sort of arbitrary silos of incompatible silos can be where it needs to be, then you now have a data-centric approach. Um, you know, we, we often term data-centric versus storage-centric because storage-centric means you're kind of wrapping your data around the limitations of whatever storage platform you have. But data-centric means that the value of the data in the moment can go where it needs to be. And that becomes totally fluid. And, and that's, a, that's a sea change in how people can operate with the data, especially in a, in a hybrid environment. It's very interesting, isn't it? We, we could say, we could focus on storage and say that storage is the important part. But actually, the very beginning of this conversation, the one thing that we highlighted was that the data lives longer than the physical resource that it sits on. So inevitably, you are trying to maintain and do things with a both ethereal and liquid sort of resource that really doesn't actually really exist in lots of respects, but actually right. does because it's still there. Because you effectively own this now, what else do we think we might want to do to this data? I mean, we talked earlier about the fact that owning the file system gives you snapshots, gives you replication, gives you data protection. To me, it seems like you've, you've got the basic, the keys here to do lots of other things. So you could, for sake of argument, you know, you can do dynamic encryption. So somebody comes along and they've only got a certain level of access. You could obfuscate the data in the path of them and strip out certain components and say you can't see that because you haven't got the key for that. That's you know, right. You, you can look at the file, but you can't look at this part of the file. That's a massive sort of change going forward. But I don't think we could be implemented if you don't own the file system and own the, the API and, and the protocol. That's right. When we say it like that, it almost sounds like we've locked everything down. And But part of the, the balance here is being fluid with whatever storage infrastructure, but also at the application layer above. Because this file system bridges everything, it means that now we've got global services, global data services, where, you know, snapshotting across everything or storing snapshots somewhere else rather than on the volume that it was created or wh whatever. Encryption you mentioned, that's another use case. But also it means that we can expose this global data environment, this global parallel global file system to third-party applications. And these could be data analytics. We just uh, talked about something that we're doing with... Uh, with Alchemy and Elasticsearch, being able to do rich, because now these third-party applications can also take the benefit of seeing this global view across them all. So now you've got, you know, a, 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 a metadata layer, you know, a metadata control plane that mm. is useful for the, the data owners, useful for the users, because there's no interruption, but now very useful for third parties um, that that can now take advantage for AI, machine learning type of algorithms, you know, deep analytics and so forth. They're not having to jump across silos or aggregate everything into one repository just so they can analyze it. Yeah, so as we've seen some of that, some of, uh, to, I'm going to simplify to a certain degree, but we've seen some of that with things like the way that Amazon with S3 Lambda has mm -hmm. built things like triggers, um, but those triggers only work in a sort of certain direction. That's right. Uh, owning the file system gives you the ability to, to do a lot more. So I would say that that's looking at where I would hope that things go. Yeah. That that ability to plug in APIs and expose things so that external third parties can be given access to 
metadata that maybe shows not necessarily the content, but summarized versions for the content, gives them information about profiles and all sorts of other things that might be really useful. Or, right. as you said, gives them access to new data streams of stuff that's just been written or said. That's right. There's a, there's a million and one different ways this could be or cut, route cut. Or route, based on that, route it over to Azure because they've got a particular thing that Amazon doesn't have or route it back to Amazon because you're at the metadata layer, you can seamlessly take advantage of whatever the mm. best resource from any vendor out there. What are we saying here? I mean, at the end of the day, it sounds to me like uh, if, we, if we're not abstracting our data, if we're not putting our data onto a global abstracted platform in some form or other, then the chances are we're not exploiting the capability of a distributed environment as fully as we possibly could. Yeah, distributed environment ourselves. becomes hugely uh, blocked by the friction of bridging the the different locations. Mm -hmm. So it's really down to people's creativity. You know, you know, what do you mm -hmm. want to do? And it sounds to me like you're building in the features to do that. Yeah, and we it's it's amazing to see our customers who start with a, a maybe one problem like we discussed, but realize that oh wait a second. Now I can actually do these other things. Mm. I can spread my data over. I can do this live with people actually working on the files and they don't even know that the files actually, file essence has moved somewhere. I can take advantage. Customers, for example, who were able to get new business because they could open remote offices, provision a team, a, a remote team very quickly in the cloud Right with a with the mm. Hammerspace instance, so that they'd have the same workflow that they would if they were in the on prem, and then over time say, okay, now we'll we'll now pull it out of the cloud and put it into a remote data center. But they can do that at their leisure over a couple of months, and then flip off the the cloud instance there. The whole time, users were never even aware that it was yeah. now in the cloud, <laughs> now on prem. So it's this flexibility of how to exploit the data and how to keep control of your cost because you know where that data is, is really exciting to see how our customers are taking advantage of that. Yeah, and it's a bit like the way you would expect the cloud to work today. We've got used to the idea that you log into you know, any of the cloud providers and you have no real understanding of how that infrastructure is delivered, but you right. want it to be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You don't expect any outage, any downtime, any unavailability. Things happen, of course, but in general, you know, it's not like the old days where you'd have, a, you know, weekly maintenance slot. There is no such thing in the cloud to, to that degree. No. So why do we do that with data? Why do we feel like data has to be treated like we should have that sort of, you know, regular maintenance slot for moving it around yeah. or backing it up? Just not necessary. No, that's 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 a legacy of the 90s. It's a legacy of putting yeah. things on floppy disks and, you know, de decoupling the user from their data. Yeah, absolutely. So if people would like to learn a bit more and get into some more detail with you know you or somebody else in the company, sure. where should we point them at? Very simple, hammerspace.com. And uh, you know, go into hammerspace.com or send an a, a email to info at hammerspace.com. We've got a selection of videos where you can get more information there. Um, contact us for a demo and maybe see how Hammerspace could help you uh, get control of your data and your storage. Perfect. Floyd, thanks very much for your time. Lo loved it to chat with you and uh, catch up soon. Thank you, Chris. It's been fun. Thanks a lot.